like to turn in your Bibles once again to 2 Samuel in chapter 21. I'm going to read just a few verses and then I'm asking uh, Abraham if he would pray God's blessing upon this time in his word. 2 Samuel 21 at verse 11. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayad, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them in the day that the Philistines slew Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zela, in the sepulcher of Kish his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. Let us pray. Lord, we are ever grateful we can come to the house and listen to our people and preach. Sing praises to me and listen to that word read. And now, Lord, we are here to listen to that word preached. We pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to be amongst us, that He would bless us with that hearing, that we can understand the words and apply it to our lives. And we go forth from this place knowing even a little bit more. We know, Lord, that our Unfathomable to us, we are grateful for that spirit that he can teach us thy ways. And we pray, God, for the speaker that he may have unction from you that he can speak the words we study and the words he knows, and that you may meet him in our hearing of Christ. And I pray for these things. Amen. <clears throat> this passage that we just read conspicuously uh, follows. The uh, sacrifice, if we can use that expression, it seems to be that these men, these sons of Saul, were sacrificed, sons and grandsons, by the uh, Gibeonites uh, with David's uh, permission, providing the seven out of the house of Saul. And we looked last week at Rizpah, and two of those men were her children, her sons and how that she was positioning herself there at the foot of these crosses, if we can put it that way, to drive away the beasts that would feed upon the bodies of these men hanging there, already having been executed, hanging there uh, before God, before Jehovah, to appease his wrath, to turn it back because of the crime that Saul and his house had committed upon the Gibeonites and especially the fact that they had broken covenant with the Gibeonites, covenant that had been made with them taking the name of Jehovah taking the name of God to ratify that covenant 
So Saul had broken a covenant made in the name of God. So this was the reason that these men were hanged. And we don't know anything about Rizpah other than her ancestry briefly given. She was a concubine of Saul's. But she was a mother. She was a mother that we may readily presume loved her sons, loved her children, loved these sons, and would do all that she could to prevent their bodies being disrespected by buzzards, vultures, ravens uh, during the day and four-legged beasts, hyenas, jackals, and so on at night. And we also can presume that those commentators who believe that this lasted for roughly four months, three or four months, because of the time constraints that were given by the Holy Spirit here with regard to the, the beginning of barley harvest and <clears throat> the end of that season when God was pleased to show his satisfaction by giving rain to this parched land. And thus, through the rain and through the anticipated grain, that the famine would be set aside. I believe also that we can presume, I hope you don't think I'm being overly presumptuous, but I think by what David did, his response to what he sees Rizpah having done, and his affections being moved by that behavior, I think that we can presume that David was moved by Rizpah's display of reverence for the bodies of the dead. And so he would take those bones, and evidently by that expression, taking the bones of these men, we are able to anticipate that, that their bodies were, for the most part, consumed by the weather or by animals that Rizpah wasn't able to keep away. But he took the bones and he was going to give them a decent burial. He was going to give them a satisfying burial, a venerable burial, a respectful burial. They had been greatly disrespected by these animals and even by the weather. Surely the sun beating down, decomposing their bodies over those few months. And David was moved by Rizpah. Now we don't know anything about Rizpah's spiritual condition. It's easy enough because she was a concubine and a, not only just a concubine, but a concubine of, of a wicked king, Saul. That she was probably not a believer in the God of Israel, Jehovah. But we don't know that for a fact. And the point is that it doesn't really matter in this case or in this passage, that we are instructed in the Word of God, I believe, through this and other passages similar, to show respect to the bodies of the deceased. They are indeed believers and non-believers, all created in the image of God. They bear that image, <clears throat> and their bodies should be respected and cared for. But here we see, again, it's a supposition, but I believe it has good warrant. We see David being moved by a likely unbeliever 
being moved to do something that it appears he hadn't thought of doing on his own. This is not an isolated occasion. And in our own lives, I think if we sat and meditated, that we could discover in our own histories occasions when unbelievers were used by God to move us to do the right thing. And I believe that this was what we see here. Very, very possibly, we see that David was moved by Rizpah's display and her behavior, expressing love and expressing reverence for these bodies to the point where he has the bones taken to a proper burial. And not only that, but he also sends to have the bones of Saul and his sons, including Jonathan. You perhaps will remember the occasion of their being slain by the Philistines in Gilboa at the end of 1 Samuel. We find after they had slain, the next day they went back to the battlefield. It says uh, in 1 Samuel 31.8, And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent it into the land of the Philistines round about to carry the tidings unto the people. And they put his armor in the house of the Asherah, their God, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But here we see the men, the inhabitants of Jabez Gilead in the next verse. And when the inhabitants of Jabez Gilead heard concerning him that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. Evidently, they were all secured to the wall at Bethshan. They took them from the wall of Bethshan, Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. It says they burned them, but evidently they burned what flesh remained, what clothing remained on them, because they didn't burn the bones, they buried the bones under a tamarisk tree. That's what the men of Jabesh Gilead did. Out of reverence for those bodies, so that the Philistines couldn't desecrate them anymore to any greater extent. Now let's be clear about one thing this morning. This veneration, this reverence, this concern and care for these bodies, this is not intended to be anything like the veneration that we owe our God. He is due all our reverence and awe. And this is intended, as I've already said, this veneration for the Imago Dei. And in some cases, veneration over the loss of loved ones. We don't know about any of these individuals excepting that we strongly believe that Jonathan was a child of God. But the rest may not any of them be those that were children of the living God. But this veneration shown to the bodies of the dead 
this reverence, if we can use that word, this concern is not intended to equate, to match, to be anything like the veneration that we owe to our God. We read in Psalm 111.9 about God, about his name. This was touched upon last Sunday evening. Psalm 111.9, he hath sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Holy and reverend is his name. The worship due unto our God, our Father in heaven, the worship due unto his Son, the worship due unto God the Holy Spirit is a thing totally apart from that reverence that we owe to the deceased. And we don't want these brought in comparison at all. He has sent redemption unto his people. That psalm that we just read. Has any other, has any other sent redemption to his people? No, of course not. Only the living God, the living and true God. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Has anyone made covenant with his people through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ? He hath commanded his covenant forever. No other has done that. No other could do it. And for these reasons, I believe, we read following, holy and reverend is his name. None other name but the name of our God. God, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit, none other name is holy and reverent. Charles Spurgeon made a few remarks about that, as you might well expect, but he said, how good men can endure to be called reverend, we know not. We don't know how that can be, and yet we have Men that we are as certain as we can be are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Men that we sat under in seminary. Men around this community that have taken the name reverend unto themselves. Spurgeon says, with us we don't know how good men can endure to be called reverend. But we know that there are good men that are enduring it. Whatever their excuses or reasons are. But he goes on, being unable to discover any reason why our fellow men should reverence us, we have suspect that in other men there is not very much which can entitle them either to be called reverend, very reverend, or right reverend, etc., etc., ad nauseum. It may seem a trifling matter, but for that very reason, we would urge, Spurgeon goes on to say, that the foolish custom would fall into disuse. We're talking in this passage in 2 Samuel about honoring, honoring, revering humanly, revering individuals created in the image of God, not disrespecting the dead, not disrespecting their bodies.
veneration as a sign of respect. And in respect, even here to the office, if we can call it an office, a position of the king of Israel, Saul. Respect for that office. We know how that works in our military. I know one here knows how that works in the military. You salute the office. You salute the stripes or whatever. You salute the bars and you're not necessarily saluting the individual. But Saul was king. And so we see here that veneration as a sign of respect for the office of king along with his sons. They were part of the royal family. So there is that particular respect due unto them. And I'm certain, as I can be, that David demonstrated that respect. It's not for the office like in our military, but it's because Saul was anointed by God, the living God, the very same God that had Samuel anoint him to be successor king over Israel. So this veneration is due unto this anointed one. Whether lost or saved, it's due him because he had been anointed. We see David now wanting to demonstrate that respect by gathering the bones of Saul's sons and grandsons together that had been lately hanged to appease the wrath of God because of that massacre of the Gibeonites, because of that breach of the covenant they had made in his name, God's name, the name of Jehovah. Veneration in the sense of adoration, perhaps honor, reverence for what God had made them. And again, in 1 Samuel 10:1, we see Samuel anointing Saul to be the first king of Israel. David refused. You remember several places, at least seven, and probably more that I didn't readily come across, but seven occasions where David refused to do God's anointed any harm. He had opportunities set before him. He could have said, well, God has provided. In fact, that's what Abishai said to him. God has given you your enemy. But David refused to slay the king, but he didn't refer to him so much as king as he did refer to him as Jehovah's anointed. And he would not take the life. He would not take advantage of Jehovah's anointed. This reverence, again, is distinct from the reverence due to God alone. But there is reverence, I believe, to be shown, human beings to be so shown through burial and through proper burial to be shown to their bodies. We can only imagine how carefully under those circumstances, under the feelings uh, in which and through which David was functioning here, we can only imagine how carefully the remains of these members of Saul's family were exhumed when, they, when he sent men to go back to Gilead and to to exhume those bones that the men of Jabesh Gilead had buried under that tamarisk tree. How carefully he probably told them to be with those bones and to keep them as well as possible 
from any damage, any further damage, with that solemnity characteristic of funerals even in our present day. How much care is showed unto the bodies of the deceased. Many different degrees, but I don't believe there are very many in our society at any rate that would go along with desecrating the bodies, that would disrespect them in any way if they could avoid it. They must have lifted those remains from where they had been buried carefully. And notice this that we also read at the end of 1 Samuel. Notice how that the men of Jabesh Gilead, after they had performed this exhumation, that were told that they fasted seven days. Seven days, that's the time of mourning that is prescribed in the word to, the, to, the, to Israel for their deceased to mourn seven days. And here these men of Jabesh Gilead fast seven days. When we read that, it's not difficult to suspect that or suppose that, that they maybe had even washed the bones. They may have even perfumed the bones using the different manners, the different um, behaviors and things that were ordained for them, the treatment that they were to accord to a dead body, washing, perfuming, and so on. We can easily assume that they treated them with utmost caution and regard. And that's, that's one of the lessons of this passage, I believe, are for us, to treat with respect those bodies. We're not to throw them into a pit. We're not to toss them into the ocean. We're not to, if we have the ability, if we have the possibility of treating them right. They, the dead have a right to ceremonial care. We're told that as soon as a person was dead in ancient Israel, as soon as a person was dead, his eyes were to be closed. He was to be kissed with love and his body was to be washed. Joseph, in, in the end of Genesis, we read, when Jacob died, Joseph kissed his father's dead body. As he wept over him, he kissed him. And in the washing, again, according to tradition, in the washing, the body was anointed with spices, different spices, myrrh, aloes, nard, and so on. These are the treatments that the bodies received. And then there is the entombment. The entombment of the body. Whether you want to call that the burial, whether there was a cave, whether there was a tomb. We also read among those that have written about the histories of Israel and their behavior, Edersheim and others. But we read among others after about a year Family members would return to the tomb and collect the bones, placing them in a box called an ossuary. 
This is the basis of the Jewish expression that the deceased rested with his ancestors. Because they took the bones, they put them in an ossuary, a box of some sort. They put the bones in there and then they would move them generally to another small room or even to a, a niche in the wall, but they would re remove them away from the place where the body had, had been laid. They would move the box of bones into another place in that tomb and they had family tombs. And so this is the treatment they gave to them. That's why we read again in, in Genesis uh, 50, Joseph taking an oath, oath of the sons of Israel. He said to them, God will visit you and ye shall carry up my bones from here. He knew how long it was going to be before God visited them. He knew he was going to be nothing but bones, but he directed them. He exhorted them. He took an oath from them that they would take his bones from here. And then scripture following tells us in Exodus that as Moses left Egypt, he took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had solemnly sworn the people of Israel saying, God will visit you. Then ye must carry my bones with you from here. And we're told also following that, that when they entered the land, when the people of Israel entered the land, the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the portion of ground which Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And the point here is that it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph, that burying place, that cave or that tomb, whatever they had fabricated there, became an inheritance, and that's why it became a family situation. And not to sound irreverent, but it's, it's like they were rotating. In other words, a new death would, would mean that the body was laid out. But there may have been several other ossuaries, boxes of bones in another part of that cave or that tomb. We have the reality here of this practice in the matter of the cave of Machpelah. You remember that cave that Abraham bought from Amar? How many were subsequently buried in that cave of Machpelah? We don't know, but we know first Sarah, and then later Abraham, and years later Jacob. How many other members of the family, we don't know, were buried in that family tomb, that family crypt, that family cave? We may recognize here the propriety of the words found regarding the burial of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some things when you begin to, to have these things discovered to you about their practice of entombment and burial and so on that are striking. But we find that the body of our Lord was laid in a new tomb wherein was never man yet laid. I don't know about you, but I always thought that was because of the purity of it, and maybe that's part of it, because of the purity of it. But it was a tomb that was close at hand. There was a garden near the cross, and it was close at hand for them. 
So it was like it was handy, but it was a, in God's providence, it was a tumor and was never man yet laid. What does that mean from what we've just been saying? But it means this, it means that there weren't any ossuaries around in niches and in other rooms in that cave. No one had ever been laid there before. It was a new tomb that had never been used. So it was perfectly clean, if I can put it that way, of any other bodies, any other bones in that cave. It was an absolutely unused burying place. The typical tomb, we're told, of Jesus' day involved a kind of a cave or excavation uh, cut into a rocky cliff. And again, like Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob, and so on, larger families would have family tombs. We have such in our day. I don't think I'm aware of any that have, that, have the wealth to, to have their own separate mausoleum, but I, I believe I read of those sorts of things. But uh, an ossuary, a boxer, a chest, often made of limestone to put those bones into and to move them to an adjacent room. And then there was a place for a body. But in the case of Jesus, in the case of our Lord, a great sacrifice made by God, made by Jesus for his people. He was placed in a brand new tomb where never man had been, not one. God was entreated. God was entreated, we're told at the end of this passage. God was entreated, and there was rain. God caused rain to fall. Joseph of Arimathea showed up to ask Pilate for the dead body of Jesus so that he could properly bury it. We don't hear anything, I don't believe, of Joseph of Arimathea until this point in time. We don't know that much about him, other than what we read here, that he was from Arimathea. But Edersheim says that he asked for that body that he might show to the dead body of his master all veneration. And we can presume from, from what he did and the concern and so on that was demonstrated that he did just that, veneration. What is veneration? It's adoration, it's honor, it's reverence. We think of Hebrews 12, 28, with reverence and godly awe. We are to serve God with reverence and godly fear, with awe. We read in the Gospels this similar language, and there's different things added in different Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there are things contained in, in particular in Luke and John that are not found in Matthew and Mark. But we read about their treatment of the body of Jesus Christ. He laid that body in that tomb, that tomb in which never man had yet lain. He laid the body. But because of the preparation day, they couldn't do some of these other things. And that's why we read about the ladies, some of the women, 
coming the day after the Sabbath, coming in the morning, coming with spices, with ointments and so on. That hadn't been attended to. And they come with those in order to apply them to the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. To apply them to his body. But he wasn't there anymore. And that's the most wonderful, that's the most different part of this burial account. That when they went to anoint the body, it wasn't there. He's not here, the angel said. He is risen. He is risen. The tomb is empty. There's none there. But a couple of angels. It's empty. Jesus has been raised from the dead, even according to what he had said and what God had promised. He was raised from the dead. But are we not to venerate him? Though he's not dead, are we not to venerate him? Are we not to reverence him? Yes, of course we are. He is to be reverenced in every way possible. In every way possible. I'll read for you one of the passages. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, John adds to the other Gospels, asked of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took away his body, and there came also Nicodemus. Well, we haven't heard from him much <coughs> since John 3, but we do hear of him later on in 12. But what's he doing? He's bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, about a hundred pounds of spices, ointments, myrrh and aloes. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And that's key also, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. It reminds us of Psalm 45, 8, doesn't it? All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Here is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ being bound with all these spices. One of the writers that I consulted mentioned by way of comparison that all the spices for Herod the Great's funeral, all the spices for his body, it took 500 servants to carry them. So you can imagine, and it makes it a lot easier to believe that 100 pounds here means 100 pounds. That they had to anoint the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think about the practice that we see in the, in the funeral procession. In Luke 7, the widow of Nain, her son, being carried out on a pallet to burial, they buried them outside the city. There was a prescribed distance from the city limits. But they were carrying him out when Christ came along and told that young man to arise and brought him back to life. But that was an example of part of the burial procession. And the example of Dorcas in Acts 9, when she died, the women washed her immediately. They didn't waste any time. They didn't have three days 
till the service. They didn't have a week until the burial. They washed her right away, but of course Peter came and told her to arise, and she did. Tabitha, arise. And she did. But we just use that as an illustration of what their practice was. In Samuel, we see God's anointed Saul. David will bury him, see to his burial as God's anointed with honor and reverence, with honor and reverence. And as I've already said, because Saul was God's anointed and his family was thus a royal family under the anointed of God, Saul. But who is, who is the anointed one that we are concerned with? Of course, the anointed is translated, is it not, into Christ. Christ means the anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The psalmist has written, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his what? His anointed. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So they, these enemies say, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then will he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. My king, this son, this, this anointed one, is his king set upon his holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree Jehovah said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and so on. Jesus Christ, the anointed, the son of God anointed, the Christ, dead, buried, but raised again. We see this being, if we can use the term, being foreshadowed by this burial of the anointed King Saul and his family and of the care taken to bury him and his sons along with his other sons and grandsons that were hanged in Gibeah. We see that care given. We see our Lord Jesus Christ buried in that cave, buried in honor and power. We find in our dictionaries another synonym for veneration. We've already mentioned that it's adoration, it's honor, it's respect. Veneration, it is also another synonym, is worship. And that, of course, is what we see his disciples doing immediately when he reveals himself after the resurrection unto them, worshiping him, bowing down before him. And we read of this behavior in Revelation 19.10. And I fell down before his feet to worship him, this angel that came with another revelation to John. But he saith unto me, see thou do it not. I am a fellow servant with thee 
and with thy brethren that hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. Not me, not any man. Worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We have the privilege. We have the privilege of worshiping the living God. We show reverence for the remains of our loved ones, but we don't worship them. We know that around the world there are men whose memories are worshipped, men whose bodies, dead and buried, are worshipped, but we don't worship them. We don't worship boxes of bones. We don't worship images. We don't worship tombstones. We don't worship crosses. We worship a true and living God through our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. May we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as Paul exhorts us, knowing that God has done all for us, not for anything that we have done, but we are to worship him, the Father, worship him through the Son, worship him by God, the Holy Spirit. Let us show our good works which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. Let us show Christ. Let us show the Father. Let us show the Spirit. Adoration, honor, reverence, all wound together in worshiping the living God, the living and the true God. I think that we have, I think that we have the direction that we ought to follow given us very succinctly in Revelation 5. This is, this is the worship and the song of angels, living creatures and elders, we're told. 10,000 times 10,000, saying with a great voice, listen, this is how our worship should be, and hopefully it is. Worthy is the Lamb that hath been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, all these things, adoration. Reverence all wrapped up in our worship of the living and the true God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee. And we can scarcely find words to thank Thee for the love of our Lord Jesus Christ that even while we were yet sinners, He died for us. For Thy love for us and His love for us that He was raised again and that He lives for us, that He ever lives to intercede for us. We praise thee and thank thee. Help us as thy people to honor and reverence and fear him, to fear and honor and reverence thee through our worship. We thank thee for the privilege of worshiping thee in spirit and truth by thy grace and for thy glory. We trust and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? From Psalm 28, 9. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Be their shepherd also and bear them up forever. Amen.